I mean, that's what Strength Finders, to my mind, is all about, is, is who are you, what are your strengths, and how can you use those to sort of help yourself, you know, become a better you. everybody, how's it going? This is Andy Sokolovich. As always, welcome them back to Thematics for another episode. I am a Gallup certified strength coach and the owner of a small coaching practice nestled right here in the small Midwest town of Clinton, Iowa. That's right, Unleash Strengths. Thematics is a podcast series that we created to highlight the massive impact the Clifton Strengths Finder assessment has had on now over 12 million people. Grace, I'm, I got my A game on today. 12,973,000 592. Oh, nice. Not long from 13 million. Yeah, I just had a friend take the assessment, so I'm assuming they're either 591 (laughs) or 592. They're right there. Um, But it's pretty cool to see that we're getting closer and closer to the big number 13. So if you go over to UnleashedRanks.com, be sure to click on that subscribe button. And for doing so, you'll get yourself a free copy of our ebook, Five Steps to Kickstarting Your Top Five. For more information or to schedule an interview for yourself, that's right, you too can be on Thematics. All that we ask is that you simply love strengths. Go ahead and shoot me an email, Andy at UnleashedRanks.com, or give me a ring, 815-441-2219. I'm joined today by the one, the only, the lovely Northwesterner, Grace Lacanti. Grace works, uh, well, she owns her own company, Lacanti Consulting. You can find out more about Grace at LacantiConsulting.com. That's L-A-C-O-N-T-E Consulting.com. And she works her butt off to provide strengths-based training to management teams and groups. Grace, what's going on? What's going on? It's rainy in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm actually, uh, some of my positivity from number nine has jumped up. Because although a lot of people get tired of the rain, it's been about six or seven days straight with just drizzle and rain and flooding some places. But I love rain because that's why we have such a green, beautiful, pristine environment here in the Pacific Northwest. And if it weren't for rain, it would be dry and brown. So that's something I've been happy about lately. But also last week I got to speak at a conference for health information management professionals, which is my industry um, in which I've had extensive training. And I got to talk to some managers who are burned out and exhausted and have a lot of turnover. Mm. And that's what I specialize in is helping managers who are burned out and have turnover in their facilities. So I'm excited to develop some strategic planning training methods specifically for managers and really excited to start rolling that out soon. So you can check it out at LaContiConsulting.com. Very, very cool. And what about your minimalist challenge? You want to go ahead and promote that real quick as well? That's been going too. That's, yeah, that was basically a a long series of of activities that I tried in order to test a theory that you could make minimalist thinking be relevant to a management role. So I tried that for 30 straight days at the help of one of our former guests here on Thematics, Khalil Patwa in England. And I did that for 30 days. It was exhausting after about day 20. So I ratcheted it back and I've shared how to do that in a 15-day format in a book that I just released called The Easy 15-Day Minimalist Challenge for Managers. It's only $2.99 right now. And you can also find that at theminimalistmanager.com or laconticonsulting.com. 
two ninety nine. Really you can find fun. that. You can find that in your couch cushions. Exactly. And every time you say minimalist, it reminds me of a friend of mine that we used to go backpacking all the time when I lived in Pennsylvania. And he would always make fun of me because I would always kind of carry some clunky, heavy stuff. And he was the type of guy who would like saw the handle off his toothbrush just to lose those extra few ounces um, to make his pack weight lighter. So every time you say that, it reminds me because he used to go behind me. And we'd be hiking on a trail, kind of single file, and he'd be like, "Hey, nice backpack, minimalist," and just <laughs> and you were you know, right. You know, so. Were you? Did you happen to be on the Appalachian Trail? We did. Maybe? Yeah, that's where we <gasps> I, that was in my backyard. I lived yeah. in Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. Hanging so out that on was the right AT. where the trail went. Yeah. That's cool. All right, Grace, you and I talk all the time, but the exciting part about this podcast is that we get to interview people who absolutely love strengths. And today mm-hmm. is no exception. One of our good friends, uh, Chinarut Rungchofit, said that we should have this guy on the show. He had listened to his podcast and said, bring him on and let him talk about his top five and his love of strengths finder. So without further ado, Robin Zander, would you like to introduce us to who you are, what you've been doing, and then go ahead and reveal your top five? Sure. That's uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here with you both, Andy and Grace. Thank you. Um, So I run a podcast, uh, The Robin Zander Show, which is all about learning. Um, So very relevant to the the conversation that we're having here today. Um, And I started that as a result of uh, a conference that I run at Stanford every year called Design for Dance. Um, So my background is very eclectic. I've done everything from management consulting to circus performance. Uh, And oftentimes, as I think a lot of people do, especially a lot of millennials, balanced uh, different careers, sort of nights and weekends uh, versus my day jobs. Um, So I, uh, it's, it's a long story, but I started in the performing arts in my early 20s. So all of those dance movies where there's an old guy uh, who's, you know, <laughs> 21 alongside, you know, seven-year-old ballet girls. Yeah. Uh, and, and the guy can't keep up, right? And that's the, the, the beginning of the movie. Um, I've done that. Uh, I, I actually, up near you, Grace, up in uh, Portland, Oregon, I started gymnastics and trapeze and a fire performance troupe that's actually still going strong, even though I'm not a part of it anymore. Um, and went really deep into the performing arts world, never having done so much as a handstand in my life before I was about 20. Um, and then simultaneously, while I was in college, I studied cognitive and research psychology, so human behavior and how humans think. And then after college, started to take that into industry as a consultant. Um, and my, my circus folk didn't know my consulting folk and vice versa, right? There was no overlap. Um, so it's only been in the last couple of years, 10 years later, that I've found ways to bridge the gaps between the performing arts and uh, and consulting and education and sort of the wide variety of other disciplines that I've worked within. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I sort of, I, I still, you know, uh, I just finished a gig performing with the San Francisco Opera as an acrobat and, uh, you know, still do consulting with large organizations to improve efficiency. Um, and more and more, I am sort of assembling groups of people who are looking to solve these problems. For example, a big problem where I live now in San Francisco is innovation, right? Is people are constantly saying, where can we get new ideas? Mm. And a lot of folks in the arts are saying, we, we, we do creativity. That is the thing that we make our bread and butter on. So how do we bridge this gap? How do we bring the tools from the creative arts? Not by necessarily dancing in the workplace, though that can be fun too, but bring the tools of one discipline into the other, because both have a lot to learn from each other. Conference that I run at Stanford, Designed for Dance, uh, was originally founded by the founder of the Persuasive Tech Lab at Stanford University, B.J. Fogg, Professor B.J. Fogg. 
um, who does a lot around human behavior. Um, my favorite program of everything he does is called Tiny Habits. It's tinyhabits.com. Um, and it actually happened by chance. Uh, I called him up. He has a, a, an app on his website, bjfog.com, where you can schedule a call with him three months out. And uh, never having connected with him before, I called him up because I was really interested in just his research. And uh, he invited me to be a speaker at Design for Dance in 2014. And then uh, just through sort of some hustle and follow-up, uh, three months after that, he offered me uh, the directorship of that conference. And I've been running wow. it ever since. Yeah. So we put on, uh, I put on my first Design for Dance conference uh, last May um, and brought together people from all sorts of industries, from IDEO and Cooper and you know, Kaiser Permanente and other large healthcare organizations, and then also people in the arts. So we had a world record holder in tango attend. Um, and then people like BJ who work sort of in between industry and academia studying how our habits formed, how our patterns of behavior formed, how can we bring specific tools that we know to work in academia and apply them in other industries. So that was, uh, the, this is just sort of the start, but I'm increasingly looking at, as I say, this bridge across industries. So how did StrengthsFinder enter your life? I mean, how did you find out about StrengthsFinder? I mean, in the assessment, and then what was your top five? What were your results when you after you took it? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm a prolific reader. Um, I, I just love to read. It's it's one of my my pleasurable leisure activities. Um, so I, I read you know, first Break All the Rules, and then now Discover Your Strengths, probably for the first time five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the time I took Strengths Finders, um, I, I think it was a time of transition. I don't actually remember what my my top five were, which is probably indicative of uh, that that it didn't really matter to me. Like that that the the top five weren't like I was so focused on what I was doing, and I don't think it really landed. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting this last week to retake it um, and look at my top five, and particularly the top four of five really fit well with some of the things that I do in my life and that I think I do really well. So my top five are strategic, activator, maximizer, positivity, and input. We share some of those actually, Robin. And I've retaken the test too. We actually had a guest um, on the previous episode who retook it and all of her top five were different. But that's because (laughs) it's it's very rare for that to happen. When I retook it after seven years, one of my top five had changed. Um, Mm. But for her, she had been through tremendous um, life and mental transition and just completely changed how she lived her life. And she gives that credit for having changed the way that she thinks about the world. So that explains why her top five were completely different. But you and I share um, two in in our top top five, activator and input. And I also have positivity. Nice. uh, I think that's a fantastic combo, Robin. And it explains why you have passion to get get people moving on something positive, but also how you expect um, better results, your maximizer. Mm -hmm. And you want people to take action, which is the activator. Can you explain the strategic? Um, you said that you love to read. Do you see the world as a kind of a, a method that people can go through, like a maze that you see the path and others don't? Or how do you see that happening so with your I, I, I really enjoy strategic by itself or activator by itself. I'd probably push back against a little bit, but I look at the two together, and those are my top two. Um, and, and the idea of being strategic with no holds barred and just moving forward, right? So it's 
you know, if, if I need to climb a mountain, like, yes, I'm going to pause for a moment and look at what is the correct path up the mountain. But then I'm going to start climbing up the mountain and continue to sort of refine my progress as I go. I'm not going to plot the entire path before I get to the top, but I'm also, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait to, to move. So it's that combination of strategic and activator that I think really is like, oh no, that, that fits me very well. That is something that I've been doing a lot in my life lately. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I'm, I'm sitting here holding a, a document in my hand for theme dynamics and it identifies when you pair activator with strategic, it reads like this. My urge to take action as soon as possible is complemented by my urge to consider all possible courses of action. And I think that kind of just summarizes what you just said. I mean, you want to take action, but you're willing to kind of stop, reflect a little bit, and look at all the possible courses before you move forward. So, yeah, I really enjoy those two together. The strategic activator is nice. So, Robin, tell me, you're sitting there, and you're, and you're looking at these top five, and you're looking at your report. I mean, what did you think initially? Obviously, you said you, you, you were willing to own those five, but as you started reading through your report and taking out your highlighter and kind of circling some of those sentences that really resonated and made sense to you, what did you think, number one? And number two, did you share that report with anybody else? Uh, yeah, I'm going to tackle number one. We can come back to number two later if you want. Um, so what's really interesting to me about these is you described your previous guest who you know changed all of her top five. And I am willing to bet that if we could find, uh, you know, if I had taken it 10 years ago, absolutely. But even if we could find my top five from five years ago, uh, which unfortunately I haven't been able to locate, they would <laughs> oh, no. all be different too. Mm. Um, they would have been through an email address, Robin, that you might have used in another place. But the, the mm. results do exist somewhere. You would just have to log back into that account. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, yeah. So even five years ago, you think it would have been very different? I, I do. Um, mm -hmm. Because while I can tell this compelling narrative of sort of what I've been doing for the last 10 years or, or more, right, since I started dancing and now with Design for Dance and, and my work with large companies, the, uh, the, the progress has been, I mean, one foot in front of the other, of course, but... I look at who I was five years ago, not to mention eight years ago, and it's uh, a strategic activator is, is the opposite of, of what I did then, right? My, my level of confidence, my level of certainty, my level of excitement for the path that I was on, like I, I was, you know, certainly accused of being too excited in college, but I don't feel like I had the purpose and the drive um, even to be running my own podcast, not to mention be putting on a conference, not to mention... Um, I, I was, I was doing some birthday celebrations with a friend, uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were just trying to decide where we were going to dinner and everyone turned to me and I was the one making all of the calls to the restaurants trying to book a place for, you know, 15 people. And, and at a certain point I was like, why am I the one doing this? Um, <laughs> when I don't, I don't, you know, live in this city, I don't know the area, I don't know this type of restaurant. And people were like, well, you're the obvious one to be making this decision. That is commonplace in my life today and so radically different than who I was at 15 or 20 or even 25. Wow. So, and then the second part of my question, did you sh share your report with anybody? Uh, I, I haven't yet. Um, I just took it very recently, but I'm excited to go back with a couple of mentors and, and dear friends um, who first introduced me to Strength Finders and look at sort of what, what do we have in common and maybe even have them retake and see what their... Uh, their inputs are from, you know, five or eight years ago when, when this was first introduced. 
Well, there's no doubt in what you do as a gymnast and a performer, you need physical strength, but go back and touch a little bit on the whole circus thing. <laughs> we're, we're, we're interested <laughs> to learn about that. We don't really have many guests that spent time in a circus. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in a very physical family. My, my whole family were runners. Uh, my dad ran a marathon and my mom ran a half marathon when I was eight. And I, I was like, I'm going to keep up. I'm going to, I'm going to try and do some of this. You know, and I had been training, but as an eight year old, like not, not an Olympian eight year old, just an average eight year old. Uh, so I ran like a hundred yards and then stopped. Um, but, but my whole identity up until I was 17 was defined by this trend towards running. Um, and at a certain point, like I was fast, but I wasn't the fastest on my team. You know, I ran varsity, uh, uh, varsity cross country, but I, I wasn't the best by any means. And in when I was 16 or 17, I started to sort of fall out of love with the, 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 the art of running. It just, it was like, go harder, go faster, push more. Um, it just got boring. So I, uh, one day I walked off the cross country team. Um, and, uh, and later that night I found myself sort of living out a childhood fantasy, which was as, as a little, little kid, I would play with Legos and, you know, make them do backflips. Right. And I would put on little shows with these little Legos. Uh, I walked into a gymnastics gym and to see just the awe of like pre Olympians doing giants on a high bar, right. To see someone on a trampoline doing a double backflip, landing on his back and, and bouncing back up again, doing another, another, you know, double front flip. It was just, wow, this actually exists. And, and they're letting me in the door. <laughs> I felt like I'd <laughs> snuck in. Um, but that moment sort of bridged the gap into that same week I started rock climbing. Um, I signed up for a fencing class. I uh, signed up for a modern dance class. I, I, there was this whole world of physicality available to me all of a sudden. Um, and it was, I mean, I've heard lots of people's stories of, you know, we all have those moments in our lives where it's just, aha, uh, and, you know, a lot of hard work follows that. But that, for me, happened to be physical, right? It, it, was, uh, it was just a moment of there's an abundance of possibility, and, and it, it happened to be the excitement for physical training. Then when I moved to Portland, Oregon, uh, and, you know, settled down into the psych department, there, there wasn't a lot of dance. Um, there was, I think, a once or twice a week ballet bar, which uh, is, you know, like half of a ballet class. Um, and there was, you know, a once a week hour long modern dance class. So it was, it was great. I'm going to take both of these and, you know, whatever else is available, but what else is available? Um, and so do jump, uh, do jump exclamation mark is a trapeze studio in Portland, Oregon, still there, still a, yeah, a live I think, environment. I think I've heard about it. I live right across the river, which mm -hmm. <laughs> seems like a long distance sometimes because of the traffic, but <laughs> I have heard of do yeah. jump. Yeah. 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 And actually, in, in your hometown, in Vancouver, Washington, there's Nadenoffs, which is a, a gymnastics yes. facility. So we would once a week troop across, uh, across town and across your town to Nadenoffs to train gymnastics. So I was doing you know, ballet twice a week, modern once a week, you know, I think fencing once a week, you know, a couple of other things. But none of these were like my performances, my performance troupe. And it, I, it almost sounds egoy when I say that. But what I mean is this community that is a part of which I am a part. And so a bunch of us who were sort of going to all of these different things together or parts of them were like, okay, what are we going to do from all of these skills that we're practicing? And we started uh, a fire, fire performance company called Weapons of Mass Distraction. Um, 
That's awesome. And, Weapons and of mass distraction. Distraction, yeah. <laughs> and it's and it started just as a whim where, where three of us got together and we're like, we should perform. All right, let's set things on fire. Uh, because we'd been doing a lot of like, you know, juggling and poi and staff, you know, and some of us were martially trained and some of us had, you know, dance backgrounds and some of us like me were just catching up. Um, but it, you know, we, we talked Reed, my, my college and the university into letting us put on, you know, just a, a weekly jam. And I mean, because we were setting things on fire at dusk every night, every, every week, you know, more and more people gathered and were like, well, you teach us, what are we doing here? Um, I also think we we hit it at a, a really it wasn't planned but a, a really strategic time um, because for example fire staff is now mainstream um, fire poi like is is very very common and this was two thousand four uh, and these things were just growing so uh, you know I, I literally hadn't thought of of our fire group in about ten years but uh, just a couple of months ago my co-founder sent something out on Facebook saying. By the way, WMD just turned 10. You know, happy birthday, everybody. Um, and we, we poked around and some of the, the, our students, some of the people that we worked with in those early days are professional fire performers all over the world, have performed on like some of the biggest stages there are. Um, the, the troupe continues to be strong with something like 50 people and half of the student body on their email list at Reed. So, you know, even though it's mostly by chance, I look back on that early performance experience and I'm just profoundly grateful uh, for, for what we built. Robin, as you're speaking about this, for one thing, I want you to define the fire words that you just said, and I'll ask you about that in a second. <laughs> sure. yeah. But what you're describing is basically creating um, creating a passion in people that they then carry on. So that reminds me of significance, the significant strength, which is making a difference in the world and having your legacy live on. That mm-hmm. sounds like it's very high for you. Is that right? Nice. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking about that in terms of my podcast too, mm-hmm. um, because I have so many conversations with people who you know have done such incredible work, and I was looking for a way to share it. Uh, and so the the Robin Zander show was originally out of how do I preserve this information? How do I create this information such that other people can continue to have access to it well beyond just you know, a simple conversation with me. Yeah. So, so that, yeah. that, that legacy, uh, is, is definitely very important. Yes. Preserving it. That sounds exactly like significance. I have it in my top 10. So it's not my top five that drive me, but it, it comes up a lot. Same with positivity for me. Mm. So that's fantastic. And would you mind explaining what is poi? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Poi? So yeah, yeah. It's spelled P O I. People can okay. Google it. Um, but it, it comes originally, I believe, from Hawaii. It's it's a you know two balls on a chain or on on cord that you are uh, sort of using one in each hand and swinging usually in circles simultaneously. Um, and so anyone who's seen fire performance has definitely seen poi. Um, there's there's a lot that's done. You know, you can just walk through a park, any park in in Portland, Oregon, on a sunny day. Um, but it's it's a way of it's 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 a way of object manipulation is the broader category, right? So juggling is a part of that poi is a part of that anything someone is doing with a staff is a part of that um and it's 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 you know i, I guess maybe even yo-yoing is a part of that um a little bit a little bit more nerdy but 
Uh, I never even thought of all those being connected from object manipulation. I, I yeah. just guess I'm really not a part of the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a genre of circus performance that is that is sort of a, a niche niche environment. But almost every, for example, Cirque du Soleil show will have somebody doing an aspect of uh, of object manipulation. Andy, have you ever seen a fire show before? I have not, no, but I'm intrigued now. And after we get done, I'm going to Google it and I'm going to do some YouTube search. And, and then you're uh, going to try it out, right? Yeah, I'll try it out, see what happens. <laughs> um, oh, man. Hey, Robin, would you mind uh, bridging the gap then since you like to connect things? I do too. I love to connect <laughs> ideas and how people can find certain things. So could you connect for us the idea of performance with the idea that you mentioned before with um, – the tinyhabits.com that your friend BJ Fogg has developed. And how do you take these types of creative arts and put them in a workplace? I mean, what is it about creativity yeah, it's a, and artistry? It's a, it's a yeah. giant, giant question, and I'll, I'll tackle little bits of it. Love to hear um, your opinion. Uh, from, from the tiny habits perspective, it's really how do we learn new things, right? Um, if, if you, you know, Grace or Andy want to learn Poi or want to learn management consulting, it doesn't really work to, you know, try to do what you see a Cirque du Soleil performer doing. If you want to do a backflip, uh, starting by, you know, jumping off something and hoping for the best is probably not the best way to proceed. <laughs> so how do you proceed, right? Well, we look at how, I, I look at how my uh, two-year-old nephew learns, right? How little kids learn. And they learn through trial and error and through baby steps, literally and figuratively. They, they learn through doing the little things necessary to make the growth necessary to get where they want to go, right? And along with that comes a lot of curiosity, a lot of forward momentum, right? Maybe that's forward momentum to trip over your own feet, but then you get back up again because that trip, you know, you didn't fall off a cliff, you just fell over. So tiny habits is a way of building the habits necessary to sort of maximize long-term growth. And so that's that's the learning side. That's the how do we how do we acquire new skills? How do we sort of find ways of uh, putting new growth into a trajectory that we're interested in developing? On the artistry side, uh, it, it's it's all sorts of different things. So uh, when BJ first founded my Design for Dance conference, it was with an eye towards we know people are most likely to do things that they already enjoy. We know that people all over the world enjoy dancing. How do we design behavior to make dancing more accessible? So he looked at Zumba, for example, which has a community of more than 19 million users a week around the world. Mm-hmm. And I've done Zumba-, Zumba before. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you mm-hmm. What do you love about Zumba? I actually love the community part of it. The fact right. that I can be in a room with a ton yeah. of other women and men, and basically we're all doing the same type of movement. And we're trying to become as, I'm not a super good dancer, but I pretend like in that moment that I can do it just as well as the instructor or above nice. you know, people who developed yeah. it. So I so imagine that I'm just as good community. as they are. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, right? And mm-hmm. that's exactly what Zumba does is it, it creates an environment where people are coming together around the shared activity. Uh, and I don't know if this was your case or not, but a lot of times people who do Zumba will keep coming back for community and then eventually get sucked into, you know, whether that's yoga or CrossFit or a larger gym environment there. It's a, it's a gateway into much more physical activity. Right. I'm actually part of CrossFit as well. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And CrossFit does community in exactly the same way. Um, so it's not about getting everyone who, you know, ought to, who we think ought to dance in the world. I, I don't actually think everyone ought to dance. 
It's just that dance provides one way for people to enjoy moving. And, you know, as everyone knows, but particularly as, you know, healthcare is is a rapidly changing, you know, rapidly changing field right now, it gets people healthy. Dance gets people healthy. So that was the original exploration. And then as I started looking at these things, it was like, okay, what are the other big problems that that organizations and industries are trying to solve, right? Things like collaboration, creative problem solving. How do we get people to talk to each other with, with greater empathy? And it's not like, oh, start dancing and all of these things will be magically fixed. In the same way that dancing gets people healthier, what, you know, on average, in, you know, in a broader context, if we look at, you know, dance is movement, movement is healthy, therefore dance can get people healthy. What are the ways that, you know, dance has trained other people or that dancers who have a high level of training can apply their skills to other industries? So two examples, um, a friend of mine who was a, a former professional ballet dancer, uh, John Michael Shirt, who performed with American Ballet Theater and Lions Ballet here in San Francisco, uh, for people in that world, Cedar Lake Ballet, he was a founding member, and then he was a founding member of the Trey McIntyre Project. Um, so these are some of the best contemporary ballet dance companies uh, in the world today. Is now at the Chicago Booth School of Business looking at what can artists bring into the workplace. So he's traveling all over the world and speaking on these issues and helping companies like IDEO, the design consultancy, the design agency, figure out what highly trained artists who sit down at the table with a bunch of M- MBAs can bring to the table. Another example is my friend Sydney Skybetter, who recently taught a course at Harvard on the uh, evolution of dance and technology from the proscenium stage, which is just you know what we think of when we think of stage performance, all the way through the movie Minority Report. And Sydney, uh, he, he describes himself as a conservatory-trained bunhead, um, meaning you know he was a, a very classically trained ballet dancer who then went into, he got his uh, BFA and MFA in choreography, and then then went into technology. Now he's a, a technologist. And he's looking at what does gesture, you know, the human body moving through space, how does that relate to uh, new and developing technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, even the Nest smoke alarm, right? And so there was this debacle uh, very shortly after the, the company Nest sold to Google, where the smoke alarm was supposed to be a you know a smart in-home smoke alarm where if you you wave at it you wave your hand in front of it it turns itself off because you know I was just burning some food on on the stove but <laughs> there's a downside that was overlooked in the original design of the Nest smoke alarm which is if my hair is on fire I'm also going to be waving my hands frenetically <laughs> over my head oh no <laughs> and then you're going to turn yourself off Nest smoke alarm well done oh, uh okay. <laughs> And, or and, if you're, you're rapidly trying to leave your house, you could be waving your arms as you're leaving, right? Right, sure, absolutely, right? And and it turns itself off instead of calling the fire department. And there's a lot of ways that these new and developing technologies fail to take into account things like diversity. So there's there's a lot of stories of even image recognition from Flickr or Facebook or Google, all of the major sort of search environments that have images have had these errors um, where... Uh, an image of Auschwitz gets mislabeled as a playground, right? Mm. Or where uh, an image of uh, an African-American couple gets mislabeled as gorillas. It, it makes sense. I mean, anytime we're looking at you know artificial intelligence, at, at machine learning to sort of solve the problems of, of labeling correctly what these things are, like there's always going to be errors, especially at the beginning. But 
let's try and take into account things like diversity, right? Uh, things like skin color, things like, oh, let's not just look at images of playgrounds and trying to picture playgrounds. And let's, let's think about what the gestures are when we're designing the Nest smoke alarm. So Sydney is working from a gestural perspective, from a, in his description, a choreographic perspective, to better build the technologies that we're going to be seeing going forward. Yeah, that's impressive stuff, man. I'm sitting here just taking notes as you're speaking because I'm kind of just blown away by it all because a lot of what you're mentioning, I've never even put a second of thought into, you know, right. how we how right. we move and, and, and how people interpret our movements and, and things like that. And from a strengths perspective, as you talk with individuals who you talk about your friends who have this kind of deep-rooted passion for the arts and that's where their first love fell and now they're doing things with business, it kind of brings us back full circle to the fact that individual talents within the workplace and strengths do not need to be locked in and uh, shut down in in the box of a job description. And we see that over and over and over again where we think, okay, you were hired to do this, your degree is this, and this is what you're going to do. And we're never going to tap into any of the additional talents in order to help other areas of our (laughs) business actually grow. And that blows my mind why we do that constantly over and over and over again. We compartmentalize ourselves just into our job descriptions and we don't look to individuals who maybe you're doing Zumba on a Friday night, every Friday night, and they love it and they're passionate about it. What can they bring from Zumba into the workplace? And I think that's that's revolutionary. Since you have this incredible amount of creativity that just is part of who you are and your strengths um, pretty much help direct you into making things better and seeing what's positive and getting people to move, seeing opportunities that others don't see. Have there been situations in your past where that's been a frustrating part of you can see things and others cannot? That's an interesting question, that I can see things that others cannot. And to kind of better define that, specifically with the theme strategic, yes, is often where, and I will answer Grace's question and give you some time to think about it, is I often do get frustrated because I can see step four, five, six, and seven before some of my peers, and I get frustrated with the fact that they don't. They're, they're, they don't have that mm. kind of, you know, long view of what's going to happen. If we do this, then this will happen as a result. And I've had to kind of grow as an individual and a professional not to get frustrated and just realize this is a talent that I have. And then what I have to do is tap into my communication talents nice. and really yeah. help to help them identify the steps moving forward. So I, I started to take it into my past and say, you know, what in the past have I gotten frustrated? And I don't think that actually works as well for me because I don't think I've always been a strategic activator. I think that that's a relatively new set of skills as I was talking about before. Now, certainly if we're not moving fast enough, if we're not moving in a way that we're all like, okay, let's let's get this going and then we don't. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm planning a, a, an event in San Francisco for a community I'm a part of called the Responsive Org. Um, so Responsive Org SF is putting on a, an unconference in February, February uh, 6th or 7th, I believe. Some of my my collaborators want to move a little bit more slowly than I do. And I'm, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a part of this, let's let's push it forward. Probably too much, right? Probably there's somewhere in between that works. But I have at times found myself getting frustrated with that for sure. But I think also because I came from not being a strategic activator, because I started sort of hoping that someone else would take charge, wanting, wanting someone else to be in control and make the decisions for me. I look at that and I'm like, okay, I'll make the decision if no one else will. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm very, very comfortable being a follower as well. 
So uh, my friend John Michael, who I referred to, I have a, an upcoming podcast interview with him on my show. This is the, the one at Booth, describes something called emergent leadership, which is the skill of when the need arises, you, you stand up and you take charge and you take over the situation and move it forward. And then after that need has passed, you slip back in to become just a member of the crowd. And that, that skill set, which I think for me, I learned uh, actually through social dancing, through partner dancing, because I started Argentine tango, you know, swing dance, a, a number of other types of uh, partner dance as a follow. Uh, sort of unusual for a man to start following. But for me, that was, as I say, I was, I was hesitant to, to take the lead. So I, I would find other people who would be willing to lead me and learn to dance first as a follow and then as a lead. And so if I'm organizing a conference or in a meeting and someone else is a better project manager than I am, I am so happy for them to take charge and me not need to. I'm the same, Robin. I like to take out charge and help to spur action. Andy and I also share the activator strength, don't we, Andy? Or do you have that in your top six or seven? Uh, activator is six, yeah, for six. me. But I, I really do leverage that strategic futuristic is my number one and number two. Ah. And mm, that's, nice. that's what really allows me to see the double digit steps in a process as opposed mm-hmm. to just the first couple. But Right. But I mean, st- strategic comes out in different ways. So with the combination with activator, Robin, I mean, I, I share that one with you in my top five and that one, I just, I tend to want to spark things to happen. It's so <laughs> frustrating to watch opportunities. Like you just described, if you see an opportunity and people talk about it and they want to do it, but no one's taking the lead. I mean, it's almost like a compulsion, right? You have to help something to happen, right? That's how I feel. I just, I can't sit by and wait around for an opportunity that I see. There's so much value (laughs) if this goes forward, but no one is saying anything. So I'm going to help people to say something about it. Let's do it. Or or I'm going to go work on on a different project and ignore (laughs) this. Or I need to, yeah, totally distract myself. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So Robin, if you were to suggest this assessment, the StrengthsFinder assessment to somebody else and they took it and then they come back and they say, okay, now Robin, I have this report. I see these top, these five terms, what am I supposed to do with it? What would be some advice that you would give them to just get them moving in the right direction? It's a a good question. And I thought about that shortly after looking at my results. Um, I think that the biggest value I see in, in any of any sort of sort of strength assessment program, right, is self knowledge is the process by which we become familiar with ourselves. And that, that original process for me, I mean, of course, as I've said, happened in, in studio contexts, in, in training contexts. It's, you know, partly just I've, I've read a ton and, and paying attention to ourselves and to other people um, and to other people's perception of themselves and other people's perceptions of us. So these are guides for me, absolutely. And I find it particularly fun that these appeal to me already. But if, if for example, uh, I were to get a top five, that didn't sit with my sense of self, that would mean I would want to really look at myself and look at these strengths and not just dismiss it outright and say, oh, no, I know best, and not just accept it outright and say, oh, Strength Finders clearly knows best. But who am I is really a question that I have, I have always been asking myself, right? And, oh, I wasn't a dancer, and then I started dancing, right? Uh, oh, I, I you know in doing circus or I'm working in management consulting. This this sort of dichotomy, I think, has really been an invitation for me to examine myself and get to know myself. I mean, that's what Strength Finders, to my mind, is all about, is, is 
who are you, what are your strengths, and how can you use those to sort of help yourself, you know, become a better you? Absolutely. And you said two words there that really resonated with me, and that was pay attention. And I often think of strengths <laughs> as, you know, you go out and you buy yourself a, a blue Prius, and you think you have the only blue Prius on the block until you own a blue <laughs> Prius, and then you notice that everybody else has a blue Prius. But it's one of those things, sure. when you become aware of the terminology associated with StrengthsFinder, and you become aware of words like strategic, futuristic, woo, for me, you start to identify what those mean in your everyday actions and abilities, and you kind of take ownership of it. And that's the whole, that's the big part about strengths-based development is really being able to claim that as your own. And then the next step is aiming it in a direction where it's best utilized. And that is living mm-hmm. a life in kind of in line with your strengths. So well said, sir. Robin, I just had a conversation with one of my children today. I have three children. My middle child, Luca, is six and he's very intellectual. For a six-year-old, that's kind of unusual. <laughs> he reads much ahead of his grade mates, you know, his, his uh, friends at school. But he... Um, we were trying to get out the door for to catch the school bus, and my two daughters are very much activators. You know, let's come on, let's go, let's move. And my son is very slow and cautious and doesn't like mm. to be pushed. So you can imagine yep. how much tension that causes in our family. <laughs> but I said something this morning to when I, my daughter and my older daughter. I said, don't push a deliberative. You can't force a deliberative to speed up. <laughs> so and what you just said that was fascinating. You said um, basically you can't dismiss or accept a strength right away. You should mull over it. And also that strength is not necessarily who you are. I thought that was really smart, Robin, to to think that the strength itself is not me. I am not input. I am not necessarily ideation or futuristic. That is not me. My strengths are those things, but I am someone different. And I, in the process of learning about these themes and strengths, then I can develop myself more fully Right. But those don't just define me, right? And and don't don't get me wrong, it's it's easier to uh, you know, play a video game than it is to change yourself. <laughs> self <laughs> self understanding is hard. Self change yes. is even more hard. <laughs> yes. It's it's oh, wow. you know, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is go towards those fears and uh so I my my previous podcast guest, uh Derek Sivers. Um, is the founder, uh, the creator of CD Baby. He was featured in the Four Hour Work Week. He's a just a masterful learner, um, former musician, just an incredible, incredible autodidact, a, a learner. And and he uh, had a quote, which is, "Do something that scares you a hundred times a day." Oh, I love that in that book. I read the Four Hour Work Week a while ago. Yeah, that that yeah, yeah. quote is fantastic, but it's so hard to put into practice. Oh my goodness! Right. And, Did Derek and I mean, say that he does that every day? He, he finds something <laughs> scary every day to do. I, I don't. I don't know if he does it as intentionally anymore. But I look at his his days. I look at what he does and what he builds and and the the systems he's created in in the world. And I would say yes, because <laughs> he's so driven to to learn, even if it's things that he is is scared of or 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 you know doesn't know yet. So you know, I asked him what language he wants to learn next, what, you know, human language. He's also a, a software developer. And he said Mandarin. And when we talked yes. about why, it's because Mandarin is the most difficult language he can fathom learning right now, right? And he already speaks, I don't know, half a dozen languages or something. But Mandarin is so different than anything else he knows, right? And so it's it's maybe not fear anymore, it's excitement. But but God, I'm, I'm afraid of learning Mandarin. And that, that seems like a, a good reason to do it. I should learn more Mandarin. I learned just a teeny tiny bit Growing up around a lot of Chinese graduate students, my entire 
um, mid, I guess, mid childhood, my okay. teen years, I lived in Ohio at Ohio University. Okay. But that's a fantastic goal to have. I'm so thrilled that you have this perspective and all these different connections with people that have pu- pushed you as well, Robin, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's that common quote, right? You are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, I don't know that I, I necessarily agree with that. I mean, how do you count the five? I don't have, you know, five people who every week are the ones that I spend the most time with. But we we are what we repeatedly do, right, is is part of the quote, um, excellence then is not a set trait. It's a, you know, a series of habits is sort of the summary of the second part of that quote. But I think is you are what you repeatedly do. And so if you are constantly seeking out you know, people who, who are striving, if you're constantly looking for that next uh, growth opportunity, then, then invariably, you know, growth, growth happens. This has been a huge learning opportunity for me. And this is why I say selfishly, I love podcasting because every <laughs> single person that I bring on the show teaches me something. I never walk out of here not taking something away with me that I could use for the rest of my life. And today mm-hmm. was not the ex- exception. So Robin, how can our listeners get a hold of you? If they say, I love this guy I had to say, I want to hear more, where do they go? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm very accessible in a lot of different ways. My email is on my website. The website is Robin, R-O-B-I-N-P, just the letter P, Xander, Z-A-N-D-E-R.com. You can also go to RobinZanderShow.com. Um, I'm on iTunes, uh, the Robin Xander podcast, all spelled out. And then probably if you want to contact me most quickly, that would be by Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at Robin P. Zander on Twitter. Awesome. And I, I did Google Robin Zander trying to find your podcast <laughs> at one time. And I believe there's like a there's a guitar player for Cheap Trick. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. Robin Zander is, is in fact the, the lead singer of Cheap Trick. There as well. you go. Lead singer oh. of Cheap Trick. So it was funny. I was like, man, this guy is multi-talented. He also <laughs> sings for Cheap Trick. Um, have, was, have you ever met your alter ego? or I, I have him? not yet. No, uh, I, I have not yet met Robin Zander. Um, but uh, the there's a, a certain set of people who hear the name and are like, oh, wait, are you his son or something similar? Yeah, um, so that's that's been a pretty funny uh, like personal reference for for more than a decade. <laughs> yeah, because I actually put in robinzander.com and it actually auto forwards <laughs> to Cheap Tricks <laughs> website. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's why I yep. had to throw the P in there. Yeah, uh, Grace, do you have any more questions for Robin before we close oh, this man. out? I could talk for hours, Robin. This has been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I guess one last question. I'm very curious from what you said in the beginning about San Francisco Opera, where you worked as an acrobat recently. <laughs> Can you describe yeah. how that works? Oh, sure. Um, so, it, it, I mean, looking back, it's it's sort of, it makes sense. But again, it happened just because an ex-girlfriend was like, you should go to an audition. And so I went to an audition. Oh. Um, at the time, I had been doing nothing but training ballet for two years. And so it was, it was a call from the San Francisco Opera for acrobats. Uh, and I, I was just, it was, you know, auditions to me are just practice. I totally didn't expect either to, to make the audition or to join the opera. Uh, but uh, I did both. Um, and we put on a 10-week uh, iteration of the show Trojans, Le Trojans. And there were 150 of us on stage, six of us acrobats. It was by far the biggest stage performance I've ever been a part of. Um, you know, the budget was something like $9 million. Uh, and I mean, the San Francisco Opera House, the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco is just this huge, stunning facility, you know, six floors. And uh, mm-hmm. we had several sets that we were, you know, directed as acrobats to climb all over and do handstands on top of. 
Um, so it was a real privilege to be a part of that production. That must have been a very interesting opera. <laughs> it was a very interesting I mean, opera, yeah. I was in La Bohème as a child with uh, an Ohio University production, you know, with college students and the main characters, and I was one of the children. Papignon, 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 Papignon. But I uh, don't remember any acrobatics happening, so that would have made it even more mm-hmm. interesting to watch. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a six hour show. So uh, the way they the way they described it, we needed some like humans who were not singing doing physical stuff on stage for people yeah. to watch while they were listening to the singing. Oh, that's fantastic! It takes opera to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Andy? <laughs> well, I know I'm soaking this all up because I bought a trampoline when I was a kid, and it took me like <laughs> months to figure out how to do a front flip. So I got to step my game up. <laughs> um, nice. But Robin, thanks again for being on the show. We really do appreciate it, sir. And you are welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you both. All right, everybody. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast, Thematics, via iTunes. Go ahead and cruise on over to UnleashStrengths.com forward slash iTunes. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, too, and get yourself a free copy of our ebook, Five Steps to Kickstart in Your Top Five. Until next time, this is your host, Andy Sokolovich. As always, stay addicted. Stay addicted.